Okay. Today is uh, no. Today is the portion of uh, Truma, and uh, of course, Hi. and of course, oh, nice. uh, in the portion of Truma, we discuss about the building of the Mishkan of the Tabernacle, right? And um, and uh, in the Hasidic uh, literature, uh, one of the most famous verses that they bring down is the um, is the verse "Va'asuli migdosh v'shachanti v'socham." It's a fascinating verse. God says, "Build for me a sanctuary, so I will dwell amongst you." And basically, literally, we built a mishkan out of various different material. We made it out of the krushim and the, the, the coverings and the sockets and the various different things. And um, Hashem says, if you build that to me, um, I will dwell amongst you. I'm trying to raise the heat a little bit over here in the house. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's high tech. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so he said that, uh, yeah, <laughs> that he will, um, yeah, that he will, uh, that he will dwell amongst you. The whole idea is a really, it's a really a fascinating idea, because as we know that God is infinite. Um, there's like a verse that Shlomo HaMelech says. He says, "Hashemayim ushmei hashemayim lo yichal kelucha ve'avki abayis hazeh." If the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot support you, how could this structure? This was talking about the base of Migdash. How could this support Hashem? How could Hashem be there? Which really tells us about not only about the Mishkan, but it really tells us about you know we say that we all have a Mishkan, uh, Mishkan in our heart that we built. We have a uh, in our hearts a microcosm. What takes place in the general takes place in our heart. We have a little Mishkan, and we say that Hashem rests within us. And then we say that we're doing all these physical things. Here they're building a mishkan out of physical material. And they say, well, God will dwell in there. God who is spiritual, God who is beyond anything, is uh, God is, 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 is beyond anything. And then we're saying that we're going to bring him in this limited form into a structure, bring him over there. And the same question a lot of times people raise is about mitzvot in general. We know that mitzvot have uh, a very uh, practical and precise uh, way of being done. So, you know, you have to do the mitzvahs clearly the way it's prescribed. And people ask, how could there be like a physical action should satisfy God this makes him happy, so to speak. Uh, how could a mitzvah be a place where God rests in? Because mitzvahs in the Kabbalah and the Zohar, they call mitzvahs limbs of the king. Just like we know there are 248 limbs in the body, that's the number of limbs, the rabbis tell us, it is 248 mitzvot. And the 248 mitzvot are the 248 limbs. Actually, they say that the 365, uh, the 365 
prohibitions that we count in the Torah, they correspond to the 365 veins that we have in our body. So we have the current. But what is the meaning when we say that the 248 uh, mitzvot are sort of God's limbs? What do, what do they mean? I mean, God doesn't have any limbs. He's not a physical. Uh, how does he, how does the limb, but it's explained, amongst a lot of explanations, the Hasidic literature talks a lot, a lot about this concept and about this idea, but it says that, just like, it's a metaphor, everything is a metaphor, just like in the human body, uh, when you have a vehicle to receive the power of the soul, then the soul will dress up in it. So, uh, why does the uh, intellect come into the brain and not into the foot? Why is that? Why does one see with the eye and hears with the ear? Why not the other way around? Because the power of seeing, which is in the eye, is a vehicle for the power of seeing, for that spiritual power of seeing, which is in your law, in your in your soul, or in your in your makeup, in your in in your spiritual part. So, it's the uh, it's a vehicle in order to bring down. It it'll bring it down because it's an appropriate it fits the power of the eye fits the power of the soul's vision. The power of hearing fits the soul's hearing power. The power to movement fits in the hand and the feet. Everything, which means a limb draws down. If you have a proper limb, it draws down the proper uh, vitality. Now, there's also two parts to it. There's one general life force, which is equal in the whole body. There's no special qualities. But then we have this very specific uh, which dresses up. But again, this is a lot, a lot of discussion in the Hasidic literature. But for our point, what I'm trying to bring over, out over here is, we say that the mitzvahs are limbs of God, which really means that they draw the spiritual being of Hashem sort of into them. They contain, they become a vehicle, they become a vessel, they become the drawing power to have they're a limb of the king, king God, of course. They're a limb, meaning that they bring down that spiritual counterpart of this physical act. So when we do a mitzvah in the physical world, and we take a physical item, we're actually pulling down a very spiritual counterpart into that fitting limb. If a person will say, uh, make up his own thing, not going to follow the exact limb the way the Torah says the mitzvah, you're not going to draw down anything. You're not going to bring, it's not a limb. It's not a fitting, it doesn't fit the spiritual counterpart. It doesn't fit, you're not going to pull anything down. What are you going to do? You, you, you're having a, a vessel, I mean, you, you know, if, if, if you can, if you attach a computer to the electricity, the computer will compute for you, but if you attach the refrigerator, it's not going to compute for you. Why? Because it's not a vessel that computes. So it's, you need the right vessel to do the right job, whatever it's... The right vessel for bringing down the godliness is a mitzvah. That becomes... And the idea over here is that the Mishkan was a place in which God says that that's the proper vehicle to sort of bring him down. 
Now the question is, how could a mitzvah? How could the mishkan? How could they bring down the infinite in the in the uh, in the physical? So that's a very uh, long explanation, which I'm not going to make. But I just want to say to you that the Hasidic literature talks deals a lot with these concepts, these questions, to try to explain a little bit how this works. But if you read the verse, it just says, you know, make for me a sanctuary, and I'll be there. Well, what do we learn this? You know, we know in the Mishkan, there were, in the Beis HaMikdash, there were miracles, there was open, you know, one of the things that God's presence is there is because there was holiness over there, there was miracles over there, there was spirituality over there, there wasn't just the normal nature thing that we know. That means that God dwells in there. That means that you can recognize, you can tell. Uh, we did service in the temple. We had the service, mainly was the service, the Carbonus. And in our, uh, in our uh, verses, we learn about all the various different uh, kalim, the various different vessels that were in there. Now, it's interesting. Some of the vessels you would sing in a normal house. What would you need in a house? You need a table. So there was a shulchan. You need a menorah, which is a lamp, a candelabra. Was there a candelabra, right? Uh, you need a fire, a, a stove. You know, there was a misbeach <laughs> over there. What? A closet, an aron. Okay. No, and then there was the aron kodesh, was the, where the holy ark was. That made it holy. That's where Hashem's presence was. Then we had the aron over there. So basically, it seems like um, now, most of the things were actually used. What does it mean it was used? Uh, they brought korbanos, so they used the mizbeach, they brought the table, they put the shulchan lechem upon him, that was a service for the kohanim that they would do once a week, the showbread, so they were used. Now, a candelabra, the menorah, so let's talk a little bit about the menorah. What was the menorah used for? Almost seems like a menorah is used for to bring light. And the Talmud actually asks a question. He, he says, oh, so that means that God didn't want to be in the dark. you know, <laughs> In God's house, he wants light over there. So the, the way the Talmud asks the question is, does God need the light of a candelabra to give him light so that he can, his room, his place where he lives should be uh, lit up? Matter of fact, but the way you see it, it, they put it up, according to most commentators, it varies about that also, that the menorah only burned at nighttime, basically. Yeah, one light burned all day, um, and the rest of it just, um, you know, was just at nighttime. So it almost seems like in your house, when it's dark, you put on the menorah during the daytime. And by the way, there wasn't that, many, that much light in the Mishkan, especially. It doesn't say, talk about any windows in the Mishkan. In the Beis HaMikdash, we had more windows. We'll talk about it in a minute. But in the Mishkan, there wasn't that many windows. It had all the covering. You had all the crushing. They were all hugging each other. Outside of the entrance, which was a uh, little, there wasn't really that much light in there uh, at all. So it didn't almost make a difference between the nighttime or the daytime. And... Um, were the sacrifices inside the Mishkan? No, the Ketoros was inside. Okay. The uh, other the incense was inside the Mishkan, and the other thing was on the outside. Uh, but there was one inside and one on the outside. So the, that was the big one was on the outside. It didn't fit into the Mishkan. Couldn't bring the Korbanos and everything else, and they would catch fire up there. You know. 
But even the other one had this fire always actually lit, even when they would travel. The Gemara says there was a Talmud, there was a miracle over there, that the fire kept on burning all the time. But, um, so, the Gemara asks, so what, what do they need a, 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 a menorah there? So we know why they need a table, because they used it. We know why they need the Mizbech, they used it. We know uh, the Mishkan, I mean, the, 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 the Aron, the Ark, that's the Holy Ark, that's the Luchos over there, so we know. But what, what purpose was there for the menorah? Just for lighting. Does God need a light? And as the Talmud says, well, when we know, it says, we were in the parishes a few parishes ago, it says that God was actually the shining light who led them, who led with a, with a light at nighttime and with a pillar of a cloud during the daytime. And with, well, so he doesn't need anybody's light to give him light. The Talmud says that actually the... Um, the light of the uh, Mishkan, what it signifies was really to actually give the light to the outside. Give the light to the outside. That it meant that the spirituality that you have to shine and to illuminate, it's not a light for Hashem. It's not an intake to give light. It's a light. That light was used. The Gemara gives the answer very simply that there was a great miracle that took place with the light in the uh, the temple that we had the uh, western lamp over there it lit longer, it was similar like the Nesh Hanukkah, it lit, lit it was like a this was a sign for the world like we said before that Hashem dwells amongst in the Mishkan what was the sign? How are you going to prove that? Because there was one lamp that constantly lit, even though it had the same amount of oil like all of them, but yet it lit all the ways much longer than it was supposed to. That was like a miracle. So anytime you walked in, besides all the ten miracles that the Pirkei mentions that happened to our father, there was a miracle that took place all the time. But this was every day there was such a miracle. So people look at this. So the light was there to show a miracle, but the light was also to illuminate the outside, especially when we talk about when the times are dark. You know, sometimes a person's life is like a light when it's daytime and it's open. Over there, you don't need any light. You don't need anybody to give you uh, that radiant uh, smile, that uh, hug, uh, that uh, kind word. You know, you're good. You're good on your own. But in a day when it's dark, you know, when the sun isn't shining, or in your own day when the sun isn't shining, um, so then you can use a little light, you can use a little encouragement, you can lose a little bit of, of some, some help over there to getting through your own difficulties and old challenges. So over there, the light, Hashem says, you know, the light of the Mishkan is there all the time, you just gotta open up the curtains, and you can, uh, and then you'll, you know, you'll see the light will penetrate, will penetrate your heart, will penetrate your mind, will penetrate your home, and you have to allow for that light to come through. So, it was an interesting thing. It's observed a very interesting thing that the windows in the base Hamikdash. This is we're talking about the Mishkan now, but the Mikdash is really Mikdash Mishkan. They both really interchange because. The verse says here, "V'asuli mikdash." Mikdash means a sanctuary. Mishkan means a temporary dwelling place. But it is really the basis for all the further permanent. Once we got the Beta Mikdash in Yerushalayim on the Mount Maria, the Harabai, that remained the permanent place. 
So over there it says that by the structure that we have, the record in the Navi by, 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 by Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, when he built it, he says, it says over there he built the windows, he built them Shkufes Atumim, Shkufes Atumim, which really basically means, this is a very different interpretation, but most of the interpretation interpreted that the windows were, um, were narrow on the inside, so there was like a big wall. Uh, it was uh, not like the, over here, which was only uh, uh, the Kroshim, where an Amo Vachetzi, Rogba was a half, an Amo thick. Over there, it was a big, thick wall. And they built windows into those walls. And the way the windows was, that in the inside, it was narrow. And it's sort of, on the outside, it widened. Uh, it widened. Which is unusual way to make windows. Why? Because most of the time, when you make a window, you want to get as much light inside. So what you do is, you make it narrow on the outside, and you wanted the light to spread inside of the, of the house. Uh, inside of the structure. But over here, they built it the other way around. So why did they build this the other way around? They built it the other way around because this was actually uh, the purpose of the light. Because the light was meant to go in that direction. It was meant not to come from the inside. Even talk about the Beis Hamikdash, for the light of the outside to illuminate the inside. But it was made that from the inside, from the Beis Hamikdash, the light should shine and come out. Which is really our function is to be a illuminating light in the world, so that we sort of able to shine and enlighten other people, other people's lives, other people's ideas, through education, through acts of kindness, and to sort of bring there a light, as mentioned before, bring there a light for the outside, not to keep the light by yourself, not to just keep your spirituality, but just share what you uh, have and give it to other people. So, here comes the Rebbe, and only somebody like the Rebbe can come up with something like that. And we were learning in a uh, in a discourse in the morning. We were learning, and whatever it says about the different level of souls. Some people have a soul which comes from the world of Atzilus, like the forefathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moshe Rabbeinu says even higher than Atzilus. He's even in a higher world. Very, very high souls. Those souls are called Zera Odom, seed of man. Why are they called seed of man? In the, in the verse, they call them, they reference them as Zera Odom. Why? They call Zera Odom because they're like a human. See, a human, a human walks straight up. His head is on the top. And then his heart comes underneath. Which really means that, first of all, he can see the top. He can see the sky. So he can see even beyond himself. But the intellect that he has in his head is on top of his emotions. Because 
he chooses what his emotions, what he should think and what he should do and what he should want. He doesn't have his heart follow just what it wants, but it follows the head. The head is on the top and then comes the heart. So it goes the order. And the head itself can look upwards and see the sky or the sky is the limit. You can see Hashem. You can see tremendous things. And you can think everything that you see from above, you can bring it down and then you can go down to your heart. An animal is the other way around. An animal, all what it sees is the floor. <laughs> it sees the ground. It doesn't see no top. It doesn't see no sky. It's never seen the top. The, 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 you know, uh, I guess when it turns on its back, <laughs> you see. But when it walks normally, it sees the floor. It sees the ground. That's what it, And the other thing is, the head and the heart is on the same level. It's not, I'm going to talk about a monkey or other, you know, that, but most, yeah, most of the time, okay, with a giraffe also, you know, whatever. But most of it, we're talking about generally, just the con- conceptually, but it's true anyways. But what's, what's an animal? An animal has instincts, basically. It has a little bit of ideas, and it has a little brain to how to get what it instincts you know, it wants certain things, and it figures out, you know, we see, you know, we have a lot of uh, scientific, you know, uh, showing how, how smart the animals are, how they figure out how to get, how to put things together, and how to get their food, and how to protect themselves, and how to live. Yeah, but that's, their mind is not contr- control their hearts, but rather it's a area which helps the heart protect the heart. But by human being, he has a mind to make the right choices. Now, some people behave like animals, but you, know, they don't, but, you know, but they don't always make the right choices. But we have the ability to, at least we have the opportunity to. But that's exactly what we're talking about. On a spiritual level, there is the seed of man. So they're called the souls that have, you know, the ability to comprehend, understand Hashem, they understand the mitzvahs, they understand God, they have a very deep sense of appreciation and therefore they have a very deep sense of commitment based upon their realization based on their vision and 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 there too you know there's a lot of times i mean this is all from the mimer that we studied it says over there uh by the way mimer means a hasidic discourse which is a a hasidic you know uh, uh, uh teaching you know that the rebbe gave this is the alt rebbe gave that we were studying. So over there it says that uh, it's not enough just that they, uh, that they uh, you know, understand, but they actually visualize it. Visualize it is, he uses like the phrase from we use in the Pirkei Avot, it says, histakel bishloshot varim. Histakel means there's sometimes you look on something, and there's sometimes you gaze. Histakel means you gaze. It's not just looking, it's not just an you gaze and you actually sort of, he says, most of the time, even when we know something intellectually, it doesn't necessarily get us to the point that um, what we see is what we sense. We actually get a sense of it because we see it. Because generally we we know that um, hearing things is not as deep as seeing things. Which means, when you hear something, when somebody tells you a story, 
you believe them. You have no reason to believe that they're, that they're lying to you. But yet, it's not really so certain in yourself because you only heard it. You intellectually understand it, but you didn't see it. But when you see something with your eyes, so if somebody would tell you that a piece of metal can fly, I like to give that example, before we knew that a plane, oh, there you say, guy is dreaming, even though they can explain to you. But if they explain, you believe them. But, you know, but when you see that up there, you say, yeah, you know what? You've seen it. When you've seen it, it's a whole different story. But Hashem, we can't see with our physical eyes. We can't see Hashem. It's not, not, not possible to see with our physical eyes. But the people that are from their souls are the seed of man. Zera Odom, their seed of man, they have the intellect. They have that strong power that in addition to just understanding God, but they actually see it. And when they see it, you can't ask any questions or contradictions or say, well, because their service is very simple and very uh, straightforward. They see Hashem. They see the God's creation and everything that they think. They don't have to figure it out. They see it. They see that God is the one who inspires and vitalizes and gives everything in the world, whatever we do, gives us our life. He's in control. And all the contradictions that you may have, well, how come bad things happen to good people and how come good things happen to bad people? Those are questions like you're asking, how could the plane fly? Yeah, good question, you know what? But it doesn't bother them because they see, they see Hashem giving the world. So what, what kind of question? You can ask all the questions you want. But that's these great souls, Sadiqim, that come from the world of Atsilus. And they see things. And they can see, they have a conviction that most of us come, we're called the Zerah Behemoth. <laughs> we're like seed of an animal. In, you know, and don't be insulted. You know, by us, if you want to insult, you tell somebody he's an animal. But it's a pretty, being an animal of Hashem, you know, Behemoth Yisimach, David brags about being an animal of Hashem, which means we, we follow Hashem not with our intellect so much. You know, we don't have, we're not privileged to have that conviction or that seeing or that uh, gazing or any of that uh, ability to really connect in that powerful, profound way that we connect with Hashem. We're like the animal, which means, you know, we just follow because we have a muna, we have belief, we have trust, and we try a little bit to understand, to figure things out, you know, to the best we can. And the Bible discusses about that that's where Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of the generation, and they're called a faithful shepherd. They feed you Amuna. They feed you belief. They feed you encouragement. They feed you because we need it. Because that's why we need the shepherds. That's why we need a shepherd to help us out. And I'm bringing this out is, you know, we have such sadikim. In every generation, in our generation, we have the Rebbe who encouraged us, he fed us, he, he, he pushed us, he gave, in the very literal sense, you know, in the very, but certainly in the spiritual sense, he transmitted the energy in a, like all leaders, because just like Moshe Rabbeinu, it says, there is an extension of Moshe Rabbeinu in every generation. In our generation, we were fortunate to have the Rebbe as and have the Rebbe still till Mashiach comes as our Moshe Rabbeinu who 
gives us the spiritual energy that we need to help us physically, the Rebbe's talks and the Rebbe's encouragement and the Rebbe's pushing us, that's on a physical level. But on a spiritual level, there is that spiritual energy as the Alter Rebbe writes at the beginning of the Tanya, he says that the leaders of every generation, they are the ones that give, radiate from themselves that energy that all the people in their generations have. Now, in the Tanya, he says, even people that object to the to the Moshe Rabbeinu, they too get from Moshe Rabbeinu. Because he's a leader of a generation, he gives to everybody. But some get it with a smiling face directly, some get it like from behind the shoulder. <laughs> I know you don't want it, but you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> you know, it won't help you. You know, if you're in this generation, you're going to get it. This is the Moshe Rabbeinu of our generation, then you're going to get it regardless. So now, the Rebbe sees that nobody but at least in our generation, because on one hand, we live now in very low and very trying times, you know, it's just out there, the world is becoming more, I mean, maybe advanced in some computer stuff and other things, is, but people are becoming more self-centered, people are becoming more egoistic, people are becoming less tolerant of other people, people are just, you know, they're just into the Egel Hazov, the golden calf, only more money, and they're only preoccupied with self-gratification, self-gratification, trying to make it, everything is about the oneself. And it wasn't that in old generations, but it seems like, you know, on one hand, you know, we've gone even, became more selfish, we became more self-centered, we've become uh, more into our uh, worship of of, uh, of our own egos and our own uh, self, uh, making ourselves, you know, g- bigger and greater. But on the other hand, we always have the counterpart because when we need more, uh, we have hard times, we have uh, some extra powers. We have the extra powers because we got the Rebbe amongst our, our, our midst gave us the extra powers. So the Rebbe would come up with an idea that nobody else can come up with. We were saying we can nobody come up because the Rebbe has seen different things. He saw it, so therefore he can he can transmit it. So what did the Rebbe say? The Rebbe says like this: the whole world says that the shape of the menorah is what? Two things about the shape of the menorah. So we have the Arch of Titus, who supposedly, when they robbed all the vessels from the temple, and they brought it uh, in the exile. They brought it, and then they took a picture of the menorah and they made the Arch of Titus over there. And what do you look over there? They made the curved, they made the curved, uh, curved line. And the Rebbe says, look at the picture of the way the Rambam wrote it. In the Rambam's diagram, the Rebbe said, everybody is wrong. The uh, menorah was straight branches sticking out. It wasn't round. How could the Arch of Titus, either, according to many, the Kalim, the vessels of the Mesopotamia, never really made it there. It was just made up. Either the artist wasn't meticulous to copy it exactly. Maybe he had in mind another menorah. We don't know why, but there is no question that this was the menorah. It's one thing. But then the Rebbe talks about another thing about the menorah. Something which is also a 
concept which fits in with this idea that we were discussing about before. The concept is, the Torah talks about the shapes of the menorah. And one of the things that had buttons, it had flowers, buttons and flowers, it also had cups, sort of. It's called givim, and the Hebrew is called givim. It had cups. Now, most of the time, when a person hears a cup, you picture a cup, like over here, like this teacup. So, it's standing like over here, and it receptacle is on the top, and the foot is on the bottom. That's the way you could die in a cup. So, most people... If you wanted to make a diagram and picture the menorah, what it looks like, it says there were three cups, Mishukodim, so you'd have this picture similar to a cup like this. But when the Rambam diagrammed the picture, he made the cup in the opposite way. He made a Gevi'ah. That Gevi'ah is actually what he made it like this, the three, opposite way. So the question is, why... Why would the Rambam make it the opposite way? And why were the menorahs the opposite way? And the Rebbe says, it doesn't matter. This is the Rambam, the way he wrote, that is the right way. That is the way it was the menorah. And the question is, why would we draw a picture upside down? Why would one draw a picture upside down when the normal way is a cup to be up? Well, the truth of the matter is, a cup serves two, two functions. You know, like they say, what would you rather be? A hammer or a nail? <laughs> what would you rather be? You'd rather be a cup that holds it in it, or you'd rather pour with it. You know, a cup can do really two things. You can either hold it and keep it full, and keep it for yourself, or you can take the cup, either pour it into yourself, or pour it to others, or to do something with it. So there's two parts to the cup. There's one part that it holds what is poured in it, and the second part, what it is, is that it pours to somebody else. In the Mishkan, just like the windows were made in the opposite form, because the purpose of the Mishkan is to provide inspiration and energy to the outside, that's exactly what the purpose of the menorah, which we say, the cups of the menorah are just an extension of that idea that it's not a cup that is receiving, but it's a cup that is giving. It's a cup that is distributing, that you're giving to others. So where do we look ourselves? We look ourselves as recipients, gaining for ourselves, or we look ourselves sort of almost like a funnel, that from when we gain, we are able to give to other, other people. And as we said, that you know, when you have... When your cup is empty, you can receive more. And when you empty it out more, you can receive more. You can always receive more. We want to represent the idea of giving. The idea of giving is when the cup is turned over, when it's giving out. You know, like they have the expression, I'm not sure about you, they say bottoms up. You know, when you say l'chaim, they say bottoms up. That means bottoms up, you know, drink the whole thing. Take all this stuff, the whole thing, and give it. And the Rebbe came up, everybody looked at the Rebbe and said, what is uh, kind of a business? We've been drawing menorahs since uh, for thousands of years. We always drew them in this way. The Rebbe is coming up. The Rambam said, therefore, we're going to change. Only when somebody like the Rebbe. The Rebbe sees things without... It's a soul that can see things 
to us, we say, well, how, how can you be so sure? You know, how could you say this with such confidence? You know, how do you know? But if you see it, you can say it with confidence. You really know. I mean, the reason we hesitate and the reason that we don't, because we don't really know. But people that know, they don't hesitate. How many people that know? I don't know too many people that really know. <laughs> but that's why uh, when the Rebbe said something and um, he knew the Rebbe can come up with such an idea. So this was part of the whole structure of the Mishkan. And it's really, Mishkan consisted of, we learned the Parsha, we really read about three parts of the Mishkan. I talked a little bit about the menorah and the other vessels that were there. But that was one thing. And then you have uh, the uh, structure, the beams, it talks about the beams of it. And then you have the coverings. You know, there is really uh, three parts to every to every entity, to ourselves, to our lives. There's the existential part, just that we exist. And then there's the functionality, that what we function, what we do. And then we have special adornment. It's pretty. The wooden structure around in the Mishkan, that was the essential, that was the building, that was the walls, that was the main, that was just the existence. All the various different vessels within inside the Mishkan, that was the functionality, that was what you did, different functions. And the tapestries on the top and the different coverings, the beautiful, especially the top one, which the, that was sort of the beauty that makes it beautiful. In another way also we can see in the Mishkan itself, you had the sockets. That was sort of the foundation. How did the beam stand? It was the foundation. Then you had the beams, they were ten arms high. Very tall. And then you had the curtains and you had the vessels inside the Mishkan. Now something very interesting, the Rebbe brings out in another talk, it brings out that there were three separate contributions. In the temple, we started reading there's equally truma. We have three separate contributions. There's three times truma, it's hinted in the verse, but there's three kinds of contributions that there was. One contribution was an annual contribution. If you were in shul last Shabbos, and you listened to the rabbi's speech, at least in Chabad, uh, I explained a little bit why we called it the Shabbos Parsha Shkolem, why we took out a Sefer Torah. Because each person was supposed to give a half a shekel, a beka, which is called a beka lagulgoilus, and they used to use that money for the public offerings that they did. So that was done every year. Now that was done equally for everybody, and that was done on an annual basis, because the sacrifices that they brought had to be have everybody's participation. Okay, that was an annual contribution that everybody had to contribute. But then you had two more contributions when they built the Mishkan, just that year. One of them came as a voluntary. 
So they needed goat's uh, skin, and they needed wool, and they needed dyeing, and they needed beams, they needed gold, they needed copper, they needed silver. They had all the various different needs. Who brought those things? Everybody brought whatever they wanted to, they brought. Nobody forced anybody to bring anything, and nobody needed it. If you were benevolent, then you brought it. So it wasn't a shekel. That was the shekel? No, absolutely not. That was Shilvan Alibai, whatever you wanted to give, whatever your heart was benevolent to give, that's what you gave. Okay? By the way, it was the only solicitation that a Jewish organization made, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, don't give, we have enough money. <laughs> Stop breaking. Since then, it's never happened again. <laughs> you know, as much as they collect, they need more. So, what happened was that everybody, but there was an exception. Very surprising. The sockets were made out of copper. Actually, the sockets were made out of out of silver, of the uh, the mission. Okay, and over there also, everybody was told to give a half a shekel. Why did they separate? At one time, thing. Why did they separate the gifts for the rest of the Mishkan, everything, and the and the foundation? The foundation, everybody gave the same, and everybody had to participate, and that was actually considered as an atonement for the golden calf that they made. So everybody had to participate. But why is that different than the rest of the... Actually, the atonement is actually really for the korbonos that they used all the time. That's actually the, that for atonement. But this was also a half a shekel that they, that they needed. Why is this different? So the Rebbe comes up here also with the same idea that we spoke about before. The sockets are the foundation. They're the basis that holds the structure together. In the basis that holds our whole structure together, the basis that hold the Jewish structure together, that holds all of us people, the sockets, we are all equal, we're all the same. We all need to participate, we all need to be part. We don't look, this one is a good Jew, this one knows how to study a lot, this one knows how to study letter, less, this one does more mitzvahs, this one does less mitzvahs. The foundation of the Mishkan, of the Jewish people, of Knesset Yisrael, the gathering of Yidin, the sockets, the basis, basis is all equal. What's the basis? What's the sockets? What's the basis? The basis is our devotion and subjugation, our acceptance. That's our existence, just the bottom line, the minimum. On top of that base, you can build a crushing, ten, ten amas representing the ten emotions, which means in the service of Hashem, everything has to be founded on Kabbalah soil, on the acceptance. Everybody gives the same amount. We all have to have a commitment to our Judaism, to Hashem, to the Jewish people. That's across the board. 
But then, each one needs to bring a contribution according to their qualities, according to their abilities. You don't, uh, it's not enough. There is the existential part, like we said before. There's just the existential part. For us to be, we need to all have that foundation. Now, based on that foundation, then later on, we can move on and we can each one contribute the best that we can. Now, of course, if a poor person wants to bring a gift of a rich person, that's okay. Actually, it may... What does it mean, a poor person? This is what... A poor person would mean, let's say somebody who hasn't studied yet the Chumash inside. Maybe somebody doesn't know how to read the words. Maybe somebody doesn't understand the Hebrew. Doesn't understand, or she doesn't understand the meaning. They look at the prayer book and they can't read Hebrew. Or they don't understand what the Hebrew words mean. Or even if they do understand what the Hebrew means, they can't learn the Chumash. So you're going to say, why are you sitting in a class in which they're discussing Hasidic concept? Why don't you go and study? I mean, you're like a poor man because you don't know yet. You don't have yet the tools. You don't have the basis. No. A poor man who brings a gift of a wealthy person, which means that's absolutely acceptable. You can, But a wealthy person who says, you know what? He is going to make a contribution of high dollars instead of giving, you know, what he can afford to give. And he's going to say, no, he hasn't fulfilled his obligation. Because a rich man who brings a poor man's gift is not acceptable. They have to bring what everybody has to bring the quality. The other ways is okay. A poor man can bring a rich man's gift, but a rich man cannot bring a poor man's gift. So you have later on the structure, which is not the basis. Over there, each one does whatever they could. So we, we can't tell anybody what to do. Each one brings their gifts, each one participates, each one gives whatever they can. But as far as the socket goes, the basis, that we're all equal, we're all the same. Everybody participated. Everybody has to have that Amuna. Everybody has to have the Kabbalah soil. And then, of course, if we want to beautify our uh, Mishkan with nice tapestries, with Ayrishtchoshim, with uh, that praise of rags with its beautiful colors and everything else, well, that's even a better step, you know. That's even our other things. That is, and you know, in our own homes, our own cars, our own uh, places, we make sure that it should look beautiful. That it should not be just their living space, but you want it to be enjoyable and pleasant and neat and clean and beautiful and everything else. We should want God's home. Mishkan, of course, the shul, but of course, God's home in ourselves. We don't want to just do the mitzvah, just, you know, have God live in a, <laughs> in a shack, in a mess. In a, <laughs> you know, if your thoughts are not organized and you're praying, you're all over the place as far, you know, today I'm good, tomorrow I'm bad. You know, it's a mess in your, in your own, in your home for Hashem, in your soul, you know, you're all over there, you know, it's not a clean it's not a pleasant so if we make sure that our physical home is beautiful, our physical home is nice, so we gotta make sure that Hashem's home is nice too 
So of course we have to make sure that Hashem has a nice place to live, a beautiful place, not only a place to live in, not only do we daven or we pray to Hashem and not only do we do mitzvahs that we can, but we also make our mitzvahs beautiful so that we do them in a nice way and we behave in a nice way, we talk nicely, we behave nicely and, and even if we're tempted sometimes and we're challenged to, we take control of ourselves and we control ourselves and we, we do what's right versus we try to be from the Zerah Adam, not from the Zerah Behemoth. We try to be from the seed of man, not like the Behemoth. We try not, not to have our instincts dictate who we are, but we try that our mind, because we do have the help of Moshe Rabbeinu, and we do have who gives us Hashem's through Moshe Rabbeinu's challenge. It's not Moshe Rabbeinu's help on his own, it's Hashem's help, which is challenged to Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem says, which means, if you open up for me a little hole like the eye of the needle, and I will open it up like the door of the ulam, which was a double-hung huge door in the front of the Beis Hamikdash, that's what I'll open up. So we got to make just that little opening and let in that hole. And when we open up a little bit, then it expands and we let Hashem in in all the things. And we have a beautiful Beis Amigdash, as our sages tell us. It doesn't say, Vishachanti Besocho, that I will dwell in it, but Besocham, in you. Because Hashem dwells in us. It's not it's so much in the sanctuary, but He dwells within us, because that's what Hashem ultimately wants, not to be contained just in the four walls and the miracle there. He wants us to be a miracle. And in essence, each one of us is a miracle that our, we are like the Western candle that keeps on shining and shining because logically we should have been sort of extinguished a long time ago. So we are a miracle. We are walking miracles after the Holocaust, after all the tsurists and after all the uh, Goyim or anti-Semites, you know, now they're going after the cemeteries, now they're going after, their, you know, all the various different things, you know, naturally, logically, physically, we should have been extinguished, but that Western candle will not be extinguished, you know, with Hashem's help, we'll merit the coming of Mashiach in our time. May we remain.